We come this evening in our consideration of the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans to verses 8, 9, and 10. Verses 8, 9, and 10 in the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now here we are beginning to look at what I have reminded you several times is the exposition of the second half of verse 5. You will have noticed that the Apostle's method in this chapter in particular is to make a general statement and then to proceed to an explication of it, which is partly an elaboration. Now, the key verse in many ways is verse 5, which says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And we have seen that the verses 6 and 7 are an exposition of the first half of that statement. They prove that uh, we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. Now then, in verses 8, 9, and 10, he's taking up the second half of verse 5, which is, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, you notice that the first half of verse 5 is negative. So, verses 6 and 7 were negative. All they had to do was to prove that we died uh, to sin with the Lord Jesus Christ and the object and the purpose of it. But now we come to the positive side. The second half of verse 5 is a positive statement that we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Death is negative. Resurrection is positive. So these three verses are going to expound and explain to us this positive aspect. As we come to look at them, therefore, let us again remind ourselves of what the Apostle's fundamental object is in writing all that he writes in this chapter. And the fundamental object, I remind you once more, is to refute the foolish and the false suggestion that was being made by some people with regard to his teaching and to which he refers in verse 1. He's dealing with this monstrous suggestion that his teaching logically leads to this conclusion. Shall we continue in sin then that grace may abound? He's concerned to dismiss such a suggestion and to refute it completely. And let us remember that he, his method of doing that is to show that the doctrine of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ makes such a suggestion completely impossible. Very well. Keep all that in your mind. If you like it in a phrase, it's this. His argument is that because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, that what has happened to him has happened to us. Now, that's been his argument for some time. He began that in chapter 5, verse 12. We used to be united to Adam. So when Adam sinned, we sinned. We are now united to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he has done, we have done also. That's the parallel. 
Very well, then let us hold this in our minds. And I say we, it means those who are born again and those who are thus united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, the apostle has proved his negative assertion in verses 6 and 7. And by that he has proved that uh, because we have died with Christ, we have died altogether to the realm and to the reign of sin. That is what our Lord did. Therefore, that is what we have done. But that isn't all. We are not merely left in a dead position. <coughs> we are not merely as dead people. So he has to hasten on to the positive. It's a great thing to know that we are dead to sin. That as a man who dies is now outside the territory of sin, that sin can't do anything to him, can't tempt him, can't bring a charge against him. He's freed from sin. It's a great, I say, and a wonderful thing to know that, but that isn't all that is true of us. We are not left in some void. We've come out of that territory. Yes, but he says we have also been promoted or translated into another territory, and this is positive. And this, of course, is much more striking and much more reassuring and comforting to our faith. Very well, then, what is this? Well, he states it again as a general proposition in verse 8. And here it is. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That, of course, as a statement, is in reality nothing but a repetition of what he said in the second half of verse 5. There he put it, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So he makes uh, that statement once more. But here he puts it in this way. He says this is something that uh, follows quite uh, inevitably. Now, we mustn't be tripped by this expression, we believe that we shall also live with him. There are some people who are so tripped and trapped by that expression that they say that the apostle is just saying, ah, we just hold on to a belief in the resurrection by faith. But that isn't what, as I hope to show you, that isn't what he's saying at all. This belief really stands here for we are well aware of the fact we are sure. He says, if we be dead with Christ, well then, it follows of necessity that we shall rise with him. If we really are joined to him, and everything that happens to him of necessity happens to us, well then, if we've died with him, we must also rise with him. And that is his way of saying it. You will find many statements in his epistles which are put in this form of uh, we believe. You'll find, for instance, at the end of chapter 8, he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life. That really means, I am absolutely certain. I am confident. I am assured. Sometimes you have these expressions, uh, sort of lighties. They're understatements, but it's a good way of putting the truth strongly. Very well, then. What the Apostle is saying is that because of this doctrine of our union with Christ, it therefore follows beyond any question that if we have died with him, and we have, he's proved that, we died with him, therefore we must of necessity 
rise with him. But here, now again, there is a slight difficulty which arises in people's minds. He says, we shall also rise with him. And there again he puts it exactly as he put it in the second half of verse 5. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And uh, because it's put into that future form, there are those who argue that the apostle here is referring to nothing but the future resurrection of the bodies of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is rather an important point, it seems to me, and we must be clear about it. And you will find that, as usual, the authorities differ a good deal. There are those who say that because he says, we shall also live with him, that that settles the matter. And that it refers to, I say, our future resurrection and to nothing else. But I want to try to show you that that uh, way of viewing this matter is completely wrong. I tried to do so in the case of verse 5, and I must do so again. I have no doubt that this statement includes our future resurrection, but I am anxious to assert and to stress that that is the least important aspect of the matter that the Apostle has in his mind at this particular moment. It includes that. But at the moment, the Apostle is not concerned to deal with something that's going to be true about us. He's concerned here to show what is true about us now. That is why I say we must bear in mind that the whole object of the passage is to refute the charge that we may now in the present continue in sin that grace may superabound. He's talking the whole time of what is true of us in the present. It is true of us in the present that we died with Christ, that we are no longer in the realm and territory of sin. So this, I say, is also true of the present and mustn't be confined only to what will happen to us in the resurrection which is to come. Now, I think that this is something that I can really prove to you. I've already given you one proof. To throw it right forward into the future means that it's more or less valueless from the practical standpoint in this particular context. But here is another argument. You notice that in verse 4 the apostle says this, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When? Is it after the resurrection? Is it in the eternal state? Of course not. We should also walk in newness of life here and now, in this world now. And it's, he says that, you see, because that is the way to refute this suggestion, that this doctrine of justification by faith and by grace means it doesn't matter how you live in the present. But he says that's impossible. We have been raised as he was raised by the glory of the Father in order that we should walk in newness of life. Here and now. So that, I think, in, in and of itself, would be sufficient to clinch this argument that it isn't merely a reference uh, to the resurrection. But then I've got another proof, which is surely quite conclusive and final. 
Take his exhortation in verse 11. There he's drawing a deduction from all this argument, and this is what he says. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When? Is all that to be reserved until the future resurrection? Of course it isn't. We are to reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin and alive unto God in Jesus Christ now. That's the whole point, that we can do that, as I hope to show uh, God willing next week. But if you throw this, shall also live with him into the future and the resurrection, well then, of course, it means that you cannot show how verse 11 is a legitimate deduction from all this argument. But further, if you want supporting arguments, let me give you them. And I'm taking this trouble because... I'm sorry to have to say once more that I'm finding myself in complete disagreement with Robert Haldin, who says that it has no reference except to the resurrection. And there are others uh, who agree with him. Uh, let me give you, uh, for instance, a quotation, a well-known commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, which I suppose that most scholars would regard, uh, I put scholars in inverted commas, the people who call themselves scholars, uh, regard as the best commentary on the epistle to the Romans, namely the commentary by Sandley and Hedlum. Now listen to what Sandley and Hedlum have got to say about this matter. The different senses of life and death always lie near together with St. Paul, and his thought glides backwards and forwards from one to another almost imperceptibly. Now he lays a little more stress on the physical sense, now on the ethical, at one moment on the present state, at another on the future. You realize what he's saying? That the apostle, in his use of the terms life and death, is sometimes using the terms in a physical sense, sometimes in an ethical sense. Sometimes he's thinking of the, uh, the present, sometimes... He is thinking of the future. So then he, they go on and say this. Here in verse 8 and in verse 9, the future eternal life is most prominent. But verse 10 is transitional. And in verse 11, we are back again to the standpoint of the present. Now I think that that is really, excuse the term, really very funny. You see, they have to postulate all this, that the Apostle's meaning is constantly gliding. It's now this, it's then that. And it's sort of always on the move. At, uh, in verses 8 and 9, it's entirely in the future. But then in verse 10, it becomes, well, it's sort of transitional. It's neither the one thing nor the other. And then by verse 11, we are back again to the present. Now, why, why are great men like Sandy and Hedlam capable of uh, writing what I must describe as just such rubbish. Well, I'll tell you why. You see, verse 11 makes it plain to Sandy and Hedlam as to everybody else that the apostle is dealing with the present. There is no question about that. So they have to say that in verse 11 we are back again at the standpoint of the present. Well, you see, if they'd only realized that that should have governed their exposition of verses 8, 9, and 10, 
they would have avoided having to write uh, what they've written about uh, this shifting, changing position. And they don't tell us how we're to decide which it is in any case, whereas if they'd only adopted the exposition that I'm trying to put before you, they would have found that there's no need to be shifting your meaning, and you'd have none of this transitional position in which you're neither one nor the other. The whole difficulty entirely disappears. So you see, by paying a little bit too much attention to this shall be, they land themselves in that ludicrous position. Well, then you may say to me, why does he say shall be? Well, for this reason. He is looking from the standpoint of our being joined with Christ in his death to something that follows that. We are here now. Well, if we are here now with him, well, we shall be there with him. That's all it means. It is simply future from the standpoint of the place he's left off at the end of verse 7, which leaves us with the death. Resurrection is always future to death. That's all. So it means if we be dead with him, well, we know that we of necessity also rise with him or have risen with him. That's precisely what it means. And nothing more. And there are supporting arguments, as I was saying. And this is why I give you them, in order to show you that that other idea really must be put entirely on one side because it confuses the exposition of the entire paragraph about which we are concerned. And if you, indeed those of you who have your copies of Holden, just read Holden on the last phrase of verse 10. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And see if you can follow his argument or discover what he really is saying. I find it impossible to do so. Uh, and watch the various other aspects of the exposition. Now, the parallel, therefore, the further arguments I produce are these. Take the parallel which we've got in Ephesians 2, where the apostle is really saying precisely the same thing. You were he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. But go on especially to verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together. Not that he's going to, he's done it. And made us, hath made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now there the apostle is not talking about something that's going to happen to us. It is going to happen in a physical sense. Thank God for that. But his object here as in Ephesians is to show what is true of us now. And he does that in order to show how it affects our conduct here and now. Not our conduct and behavior when we shall be glorified and entirely free from sin. And indeed if you want another parallel you've got it in Galatians 2.20, the famous statement. Or indeed start with verse 19. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God, not after I'm resurrected, but now. I am crucified with Christ. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not I'm going to live, I live now. And the, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me 
and who gave himself for me. That's exactly the same thing all over again. And it is not referring to what will be true of me after the resurrection. It is what is true of me in the here and now. Now, if only we realize the object of this entire argument, which is to deal with our living in the present, we shall be saved from all those vagaries in the matter of interpretation. Very well, then, let me sum it up like this. And I've spent much too long on that, but I'm driven to do so because of the way in which authorities can be led astray. Here, then, is the general proposition that we have died with Christ to sin and have risen with him also to an entirely new life which is in an entirely new realm which has nothing whatsoever to do with sin. We finished with that realm of sin, he says, not only by dying but also by rising again. The dying really does make it complete, but if you realize you're risen again on top of that into another different realm, well, the thing surely should be as clear as daylight to you. We've not only died, we've risen again into a new and a resurrection life with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the proposition of verse 8. But now, the apostle is anxious that we should be very clear about this and that we should grasp the full meaning of this wonderful statement. How can we be sure of it? How are we to grasp it? Well, this is the way he says. The way to be clear about this doctrine, to understand this great assertion in verse 8, is to be absolutely clear in our minds as to what has happened to the Lord Jesus Christ himself in this question of relationship to sin. Because what is true of him is true of us. Is that clear? To be clear as to our position means that we must first and foremost be clear as to what is true about him in his entire relationship to the realm of sin. Because what is true of him is true of us, because of the doctrine of our union with him. Very well. Now this is what he expounds in verses 9 and 10. Knowing, he says, here it is once more, you see, knowing. We had it before in verse 6. And in verse 3, knowing not. There are certain things that the apostle says we ought to know very well indeed. That's what knowing means here. You know very well. He means it is clear to you. But the question is, is it? Is it clear to us? You will find that many people in interpreting these two verses 9 and 10 talk about us and our experience. And therefore they don't know what the apostle says we all ought to know. What is this? Well, the way to understand this is this. We must, for the moment, forget all about ourselves and our experiences and consider only what is true about the Lord Jesus Christ, what happened to him in the matter of, the, of relationship to sin. That is the way to understand the truth. Our present position is the thing with which the apostle is dealing here. 
So far he hasn't come to the realm of experience. That's going to start in verse 11 and then go on. At the moment he's not dealing with experience. And if you push in experience, our own personal experience into these verses, you're denying what the apostle was trying to say. What's he doing? Well, he's showing us clearly what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because until we are clear about what happened to him, we'll never be clear about our own position. We'll never get victory in our lives. Now, this is a most important principle. This is how the New Testament deals with us and our problems and our difficulties. It never starts with them directly. The first thing the New Testament tells you to do always is, just for a moment, forget yourself altogether. Forget all your problems, your temptations, your difficulties, everything else. Forget yourself. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider what's happened to him. Consider his relationship to sin. Then when you've got that clearly, your next step then is this. Yes, but I am joined to him. And what is true of him is true of me. Therefore, I deduce this about myself. That's exactly what the apostle is doing here. And he doesn't come to that, therefore, until chapter 11. Now then, forget all about yourselves and, and your experiences and your subjective moods and states and conditions. You say, ah, but there's a term here about dying to sin, and I'm trying to die to sin. Paul isn't interested in you at all at this point. He is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 9 and 10. Now then, there is the key to the whole question. What does he say about him? Well, this is what he says we ought to know that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Now then, what does this mean? Why is this true? Why is this true of necessity with respect to him? How can we know this and understand it and be sure of it? You notice his statement, we know, he says, we are certain of this, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dieth no more. Sin hath no more, death hath no more dominion over him. This, he says, is the proof. Well, let's look at it. Here is the first thing. Christ having been raised from the dead. Well, the moment I make a statement like that, I ask this question. If Christ has been raised from the dead, as we know he has, by whom has he been raised from the dead? And the apostle has already given us the answer in verse 4. Listen. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, which we saw meant by the glorious power of the Father. So it was the Father who raised him from the dead by his glorious power. Right. What does that tell me? It tells me this. The very fact that God raised him from the dead is proof positive that God was fully satisfied with the work which his son had done upon the cross. 
The resurrection is God's announcement and proclamation to the whole universe that Christ has completed the work which he sent him into the world to do. You remember how Paul has stated that in the last verse of chapter 4, 425, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, which we saw meant this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an announcement, is a proclamation to the whole universe by God that his Son has completed the work of atonement and redemption and of salvation. Therefore, you see, that is the Apostle's argument here. He says, we know this, that Christ being, having been raised from the dead, dieth no more. Why? Well, there's no need for him to die anymore. He doesn't go on dying. He's done it. The resurrection proves that. And it proves that he's finished it. That it is an end of it. But he puts that still more strongly in the next phrase. Death, he says, hath no more dominion over him. Now this is a tremendous statement. Death hath no longer any dominion or power over him. Now, what does it mean? Well, it means this. There was a point, there was a time, when death did have power over him. And that was why he died. But how did death ever come to have power over him? That's the question. The apostle tells us in writing to the Corinthians that the sting of death is sin. The thing that really enables death to come upon us is sin. Sin is the thing that produces death. And here I see the Son of God dying. He's come under the power of death and it stings. Well, how can this have happened? Because he was without sin. He never sinned at all. Quite so, but this is the glorious gospel, isn't it? That he had taken upon himself our sins. And you see, it works like this. What we've got to explain is how death at any time had any power over the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the explanation. He took our sins upon himself. And because he had taken our sins upon himself, he put himself under the penalty of the law. And we must always remember that it is the law that gives to sin the power to reign unto death. You remember how Paul puts it there in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. You see the sequence. How does sin lead to my death? Well, sin leads to my death because sin is a breaking of the law, and the law pronounces death as the punishment for the sin. The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law. Very well then. Here is our Lord who is sinless. And death can't touch him. But he takes our sins upon him. 
By taking our sins upon him, he's under the law and its condemnation. So, death has its power upon him. The prescription of the law as punishment for sin comes upon him. And thus, because he bears our sins, death had power over him. And for that reason, and for that reason only, he died. Death has no more dominion over him. It did have at that point, and it killed him. He was under the power of death. Well, how can I know that it no longer has that power over him? Well, the answer is as I've been showing you. The resurrection proves that. The resurrection is a proof of the fact that the law has been satisfied. The resurrection is a declaration of that. That is why he was raised again for our justification. His resurrection means that the law is not only satisfied, but that he is no longer under this law. He's gone back to the glory. He was made under, of a woman made under the law, but he's no longer in that condition. He's finished with the law. Very well. If he has finished with the law and his resurrection proves that, because God is there saying that he's fully satisfied, well then sin cannot, death cannot touch him any longer. Death could only touch him as long as he was under the condemnation of the law. It cannot touch him apart from that. So now in his resurrection, we see that he is finished with the law and that therefore death cannot in any way touch him. His resurrection means, if you like this, that Christ, as Paul again puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, has conquered the last enemy. You remember he puts it like that, the last enemy that shall be conquered is the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. But here is one who has actually defeated the last enemy. He has conquered it. He has risen again. So he has finished altogether and entirely with death. He has defeated it completely. Listen to the apostle saying that at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Let me start reading in verse 54. So, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that in the main, of course, is dealing with the resurrection in a physical sense. But it's this, this is also true. The argument is, you see, that our Lord himself has already done that. He has already conquered the last enemy, and he's conquered him for us. That's why we needn't fear death. That's why we can be certain of our resurrection. Yes, but at the moment, we're looking only at him. And what the apostle is here asserting in this great verse in Romans 6, verse 9, is that he really has achieved this conquest. That death hath no more dominion over him and never shall. In every way he has finished with it. He not only 
shows that by his rising in the sense of justification and that he's finished with law, he's gone beyond that. By dying, he's conquered death. He's rendered it inoperative in that sense. In other words, we can put it as it's put in Hebrews 2, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. That's just another way of saying the same thing and looking at it from a slightly different angle. All these statements rarely are asserting this, that the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection has once and forever and finally finished with death. And because he's finished with death, he has altogether finished with the realm and the rule and the reign of sin, which is the thing he was setting out to prove, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the last verse in the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Very well. There is this great statement in verse 9. Now, we're not thinking about ourselves at all. All we can see is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ once was under the power of death, under the dominion of death, but no more that has gone, that is finished with, once and forever. His rising from the dead is a proclamation that death is conquered and vanquished by him, that he will never die again. He came here to do one thing. He's done it. He's back in the glory. He's nothing to, more to do with the whole realm of sin and of death. Very well. That's the statement. Well, now in verse 10, he just puts that a little bit more clearly. For, he says. And the word for uh, tells us that he's going to give an explanation. For, in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now then, what does this mean? In that he died, he died unto sin. What does that mean? What does he mean by dying unto sin? You will find that many people interpret this as if the statement was that he died to sin. And then they begin to say, of course, that's what I want to do, is to die to sin. They bring in their own experience, and they get into an impossible muddle from the standpoint of exposition. I say again, forget yourself, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that he died unto sin. Now, he doesn't say that he died for sin. You'll find that some of the commentators say that he did. And that, he's, that all the apostle is saying here is that uh, when he died, he died for our sins. That is perfectly true, of course, but it isn't what the apostle is saying here. That is justification, and this is not dealing with justification. And, but I can prove that in another way. I can prove that he doesn't say that our Lord died for sin very simply in this manner. The parallel makes it impossible. The parallel is that what is true of him is true of me. 
Therefore, if I say here that the apostle is saying that he died for sin once, well, then it is true also that I have died for sin once. But if that's not true. It is he alone who died for sins. We don't die for our sins. We cannot. He alone could do that. So it doesn't mean that he died for sins. The apostle says he died unto sin. Neither does he mean this, and this is most important, clearly. It doesn't mean that he died to the power of sin in our lives. It doesn't mean that he died to indwelling sin. It doesn't mean that he died to the liability to sin. It doesn't mean that he died to the force of sin as an evil power in our lives that drags us down. It doesn't mean any one of those things for this reason, that those things were never true of him. There was never any power of sin in his life. There was never any liability to sin in his case. There was no such thing as indwelling sin in Christ. He was not a sinner. There was no sin in him. He was harmless and undefiled and separate from sin. So it doesn't mean that. So we must realize that the term is that he died unto sin. What does it mean then? Well, I suggest it means exactly what it means in verse 2, in verse 6, and in verse 7, as we have already seen. He's just stating it once more, so that we shall be all perfectly clear about it. How shall we that died to sin, and we interpret it as meaning this, died to the realm and to the rule and to the reign of sin, Nothing else, nothing more, not to sin as justification. No, no, as Holden puts it. No, it means that we have died not only to the condemnation of sin, but we have died to the whole realm and rule and reign of sin. It means exactly the same in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. And that was the sense in which we interpreted that, you remember. That in that whole relationship to sin, we died. And we saw the same thing in verse 7. He that is dead is freed from sin. Not justified from sin, but freed from the whole realm and rule and reign of sin. So he's saying it again. In that he died, he died unto sin once. He died to that whole relationship to sin, into which he put himself voluntarily for our salvation once. That's what he's died unto sin. He has died unto it as a power, as something that reigns, as we've seen in chapter 5, something that has a realm and a rule and an authority. And you notice that he says, in that he died, he died unto sin once. But let's get clear this word. This is a bad translation here. Once means once and once only. It means once and once and for all. It means once and once forever. You see, once alone doesn't tell you that. You can say once and again, but it doesn't mean that. He, the word used by the apostle means once and once only. Once and once forever, never to be repeated. Now, this, of course, is something that I can illustrate best by showing you how this is emphasized so constantly and powerfully in the great epistle to the Hebrews. Let me give you the references. 
The first is in Hebrews 7, verse 27. Listen to this. He's contrasting our Lord as a high priest with the priests under the Old Testament dispensation. And he says, such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, once and forever, when he offered up himself. The contrast is between the repetition of the sacrifice and the once and once forever. Then the next example is to be found in chapter 9 in several verses. Take Hebrews 9:12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once, once and forever, into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Then go on to verse 26 in chapter 9. Again he is having this comparison. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others, for, says verse 26, then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, once and forever. And then go on to verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Then go on to chapter 10, and there you'll find three references to it. Verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is, once for all. Then let me read the connecting link. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, here's the second. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Let me give you the next connecting link. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Verse 14, here's the third example in chapter 10. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He's done it by one offering, never to be repeated, once and forever. He has perfected them that are sanctified. Well now, I'm afraid I've got to leave it at this this evening. And it's good perhaps that I shall have just left you like this with the evidence without going on to draw the full deduction. But you see what the apostle is doing. He has made this great pronouncement. In verse 8, he is demonstrating it in verse 9. And now he is giving us the full explanation of what he's saying in verse 9 in verse 10. And the point we've reached is this that he is showing the finality of what Christ has done. How can I be sure? 
that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, that death hath no more dominion over him. Well, he says, this is the explanation. When he died unto sin, he did it once and forever. And the work is so complete, there's never any need for him to come back. Those old priests under the Old Testament, they had to keep on doing the same thing day after day of the high priest, year after year. Not so here, because he's the Son of God, because he is who and what he is and the way he did it, he by one act has done it once and forever. It needs no repetition, and there will be no repetition. So I know that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Sin hath no more dominion over him. Very well, we'll leave it at that, and we'll complete his argument, God willing, next week, and then go on to draw the grand deduction about us. Yes, and even in an experimental sense. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, we again would humbly thank Thee for the marvel and the mystery and the wonder of Thy ways. O oh Lord, we pray that we may be enabled to see these things clearly so that we shall see our relationship to them. O oh God, grant us that grace, we pray Thee, to follow the steps of Thy word. Forgive us that we are ever seeking these shortcuts in our experiences instead of following thy word and its truth. Oh, help us to see that we can never be right in ourselves until we look out of ourselves and see the truth concerning him into whom thou hast engrafted us and unto whom thou hast joined us. Oh, Lord, forgive us for trying to find any way of peace and of salvation and deliverance from sin except thy way. Help us, therefore, we pray thee, to see these great truths concerning thy dear Son, in order that we may be enabled to follow when we come to the deductions of thy most holy word. Lord God, we thank thee for what we see already of the finality, the certainty of it all. O oh God, we pray thee that we all may so see it that we shall be filled with a glorious sense of assurance and of victory. Hear us, O Lord, in this our prayer, and dismiss us with thy blessing. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night and until we shall see him face to face. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.